Dear Asian Girl, for Asian Girls, by Asian Girls. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Dear Asian Girl. My name is Abby. I am 22, Korean American for life. <laughs> I am in the city of Seattle, and I'm currently a student right now at the University of Washington, finishing up my last year. Uh, I'm one of your co-hosts, but let's listen to the other ones. Megna? Hello, everyone. My name's Meghna. I'm 19 years old, soon to be 20 in just a couple months, but currently 19. I am Indian American here in sunny Southern California in Los Angeles. And currently, I'm also a student like Abby. I go to UCLA and I'm studying public affairs and business econ. And finally, my name is Eden. I'm 21 years old. I'm Chinese, Malaysian, British, whatever order you want. Um, and I'm currently in London in the UK. I graduated last summer, so I'm now working in the grassroots sector slash inclusivity within the heritage sector. So yeah, today we really wanted to talk and just have a really chatty conversation about representation. We're doing this whole season on entertainment and Asian representation within the entertainment industry, but we haven't really had like a good long chat about what we think and feel about representation, how we might define it. Um, and yeah, just kind of these more basic things. So we wanted to do that today, really. Um, so one thing that I always think of when it comes to representation is something that I watched for like during my studies, and it was Stuart Hall's representations in the media lecture. I think there's a couple of parts and it's on YouTube. It's, it's um, for free. You can, you can watch it for free. And in this, he talks about how representation fundamentally goes through a filter and how there's no one true representation of anything because representation at its basic level is a representation. So already representation can never boil down to one empirical thing because it already requires going through a filter, which is crazy. If you guys are seeing the video right now. I'm gagging. The, re, the re representation Right? Oh my god. Exactly. So every single representation of anything that exists is already a representation of something which already exists. Wild. So this is my favorite thing to quote. I think I actually already said it in maybe a couple of episodes back during yeah, during our interview with Monica Watt. I mentioned this and it still blows my mind. Anyway, so that's the first thing that comes to my mind when I think about defining representation. Um, and when it comes to what is good representation, for me, this isn't about having positive representation necessarily. It's just about seeing a, div a diverse range of representation. So it's about variety. And variety to me is not only, for example, not only East Asians being represented, but all kinds of Asian people, including West and Central and North Asian people. Amen to that. It also means Asian people of all kinds of Asian identities in the sense of identities that intersect in all kinds of places when we're talking about like age and like skin color specifically because colorism is a huge thing here um and like abilities and neurotypes and sexuality was another thing and sexualities sexuality. Um, gay rights <laughs> gay rights exactly yes <laughs> so that to me is also a really important aspect of variety um, and lastly, it's also just variety in terms of the kinds of storylines that we see Asian people involved in. So storylines that are about Asianness, storylines that aren't because we want to normalize Asianness, you know. 
And if white Western characters get to have storylines that have nothing to do with their white Westernness, why is it that Asian people don't very often have narratives that aren't about their Asianness? So yeah, those are my initial thoughts when it comes to representation. Have you guys got anything to add? Yeah, definitely. I just wanted to jump in here and say that I really thought what you said about this representation was something that to me personally was really eye-opening. I remember you mentioned this the first time with our Monica Watt interview. And I just remember like thinking that I've never thought about it from that lens before. And I actually never really understood it the way you explained it until I actually took a class this quarter um, at my school called Qualitative Research Methods. And we talked a lot about how when you conduct qualitative research, you conduct interviews, you conduct field observation studies. And when you're collecting that qualitative data, it goes through the filter of the researcher. So you can never authentically represent someone else's story because you're fundamentally coming from a different positionality, from a different lens. And when you represent someone else's story or someone else's experience in your qualitative research, you fundamentally are filtering it through your perspective. So it's never going to be like quite as authentic as it would be coming straight from that person. So I just thought that was really interesting because like I'm seeing this like in my class and I just thought that was really cool. Um, but to kind of follow up on, on your discussion on what representation means to us, what is good representation? I would think me personally, when I think about good, authentic, meaningful representation, I think about how I feel. I think about this sense of belonging. Um, to go back to our Monica Watt interview from a few episodes ago, just this feeling of seeing myself reflected in a piece of media that I'm consuming and just seeing people who look like me, who have backgrounds similar to myself, and just seeing them like on a screen or in a book. And then I just feel like, oh, I do belong here. I do belong in this space. This is a space that includes me because there are people who, you know, look like me, talk like me, act like me, who live like me represented in these pieces of media and just that's why I feel like just good representation provides that feeling of belonging for the people who are consuming that media because it tells them that this author this content creator that they see you that they know that you exist that they know that you deserve to be in this space and I just feel like that is what good meaningful representation does for you it assures you and it ensures that you f that you feel like you have a place in whatever space you're taking up. So I think just wanted to echo um, Eden's points, but also just wanted to put that out there that I feel like good authentic representation is fundamentally connected to that sense of belonging. Uh, Megna, mic drop. Um, <laughs> mic drop. Giving you a little cops from over here. Like, slay. <laughs> I really love that both of you are kind of referencing things that you have taken on from classes and uh, just different ways which you have been shown representation and kind of formed your own opinion about it. Um, I don't know about you, controversial opinion? Okay, sometimes I get representation where I'm like, I'm glad this exists, but it's not for me. And it's not in a way where it's like, the thing is, I know it's supposed to be for me. Like, for example, I'm a Korean person who grew up in America I'm like okay this is supposed to be like a movie like to all the boys I've lo ever loved is supposed to be representation for me I do not care for it um I do not care for it I and I think it's something where 
the more you're like we, you said earlier, even like the more that you have these intersecting identities, um, it kind of hits a point where it's like, oh, like, oh, shit. I think I might have to be the one who goes out there and makes the representation that I want. Or something that I really found uh, I enjoy is uh, kind of the more uh, populist ways of getting media to feel like I relate to, which is me being like, me when I see a random comic on Tumblr or Twitter or Instagram and it makes me go, this is my brain. Wow, you would, <laughs> you know what I've experienced in life. Um, mm-hmm. and so, like, of course, throughout this episode, I know we're going to be talking about different ranges of media that we feel like representation slays on. And I think it's interesting because there are sometimes maybe things that are supposed to be made for us that aren't on that list, but there's some things that I feel like weren't made for me. And I'm like, so representation coded. I'm like just mm-hmm. like for real for real yeah no I definitely feel that I think a big part of that as well is and I feel like this has been touched on I mean just in um the previous episode our interview with Marissa Tanjaran is like you can you can really tell I feel like a reason why sometimes things feel like oh this is meant to be representation for me I'm meant to feel represented but I don't care for this is it really is because of who is behind the scenes. So even though we might see like Asian characters on screen, if they're not also behind the scenes and if they're not involved in the development and the writing of the the form of media, you can really tell. And I mean, I don't know who was involved in the production or the directing of um, To All the Boys I've Loved Before and, and everything. So this isn't necessarily targeting that. But I feel like you can just feel it in your chest when there isn't representation both sides of the camera. And that's why it's so important. Like, it just feels inauthentic. Honestly, to all the boys I love before Slander is me probably just being, like, a hater. Because um, when it came out in high school, I was, like, going through the most rancid, borderline, kind of abusive situationship in the world. Oh. And I was like, I cannot see an Asian woman be happy right now in a loving relationship. So that's me being a little bit of a hater. But I want to back up what you said with two thumbs up. Like, yes, so true. Mm-hmm. On that note, I think, like, I'm really curious to know what you guys think are, like, good actual examples of representation or media that you felt represented by. So, like, what do you guys have to say for that? Oh, my God. So, I've just had a really good past year of seeing and reading and, like, hearing things that have made me feel represented in, like, the best way. So, like, um, most again, in the Monica Watt interview, I mentioned how I cried reading Tash All for the first time at the the first ever... No, that's one of my favorite stories. Yeah, the first ever East and Southeast Asian Literature Festival in London that I attended a couple of months ago now. Um, and that was one real moment for me. Like, Tash is literally a, a man. Tash is a whole man, and still I felt so represented <laughs> because of, like, the writing that he shares and, like, the rest of his identities, which are, like, identical to mine. Like, he's Chinese-Malaysian. Mm-hmm. Um, and gay as well and I'm like wow it doesn't even matter that he's a man <laughs> um, I remember you said that he's like the man version of you he is <laughs> he's me for real he got up got me a glass of water that is that is a man that is that is a real man <laughs> um, but aside aside from that um, EC Lit Festival I so my dissertation I wrote 
on well, several different texts, but on one text that at the time was unreleased um, called The Untitled Fuck Miss Saigon Play by Kimberly. I don't think we normally swear, but it's got to be allowed for this title. <laughs> I can't do anything about it. I fully swore just like two seconds ago. Speak your truth. Speak your truth. So, yeah, so I wrote my dissertation on that. And since I submitted it and got my grade back and everything and graduated, it came out and started being performed in theatres again. So I went to see it um, a few months again, a few months ago now. And it was just such a life-changing experience, honestly. I was just crying in the middle of the Young Vic in London. Again, here's me and and crying. Um, But there's just this one like kind of speech and I'll just read the beginning of it but there's one little speech that the main character Kim gives towards the end and it genuinely kind of changed my life it definitely it like changed the trajectory of my life I swear when I when I read it at first in the unreleased play script and then heard it again on stage like slightly modified I think it was it just encapsulated my life and like how I feel about a lot of things so essentially to give context um without spoiling a big premise behind the play is that um, the main character Kim, who is named Kim for good reason, um, given that's called Untitled Fuck My Second Play, um, is sort of pushing back against all of these repeated narratives because we see it again and again and again from like Madame Butterfly to like Miss Saigon and everything in between. The repeated narrative of like the the East or Southeast Asian woman, the victim who gets saved by like the American GI or the some other white man, and so the scenes kind of um mimic each other and there's a lot of repetition that's a that's a main feature of the play and they always end in some kind of loss or or kim dying or kim suffering something and so towards the end of the play she has this amazing speech and the beginning of it reads it happened it happened it happened to me it's in me it's not wiped away it stays somewhere you know it stays inside me every time every time with the knife, with the gun, down the well, off the bridge, the poison, the fire, the water, the hands around my neck, the sword through my belly, the rape, the beating, the hanging, the pillow over my face. I remember them all. I remember them all. The way I was torn and crushed and burned and cut. I feel it in my body. All those deaths over and over and over. And it keeps going um, and just gets more tragic and incredible and poignant. But it just made me realize that I am the product I'm the product of generations and generations of really strong Asian women who have withstood some of the hardest battles that a human can withstand and some of the worst horrors and injustices. And I might not know their names or their parents' names or their children's names, and I may not na- know them at all, but still there's this invisible string which connects us. And it means that I contain the legacies of so many lives all of these lives and my existence is a testament to their will to live so it i just realized that all in the middle of the young vic in london and it's just had tears streaming down my face my girlfriend's next to me like oh i guess that was a really good speech um but it was just it was incredible honestly i just i need to see this play again and just process it all again because there are so many points like that in the play that just made me feel so represented and just really helped me process all of this like intergenerational trauma and all this baggage that I have as a result of being like an immigrant kid. So that was a big thing for me. No, Edith, that's so wonderful. Like, no, just just hearing you talk about it, it just, I don't know, it's just so moving and, and impactful. Like, y'all can't like, I mean, I don't know if you guys could 
see this or will see this, but like me and Abby were just clapping and like frantically gesturing in the background because that was such a beautiful reflection on your experience, Eden. And I just wanted to say like, I relate to so much of what you said because like those, the times that I felt the most represented have also been times where like I was moved to tears. Like I could just feel at the, in the bottom of my soul that like what I'm seeing, what I'm hearing, what I'm listening to, what I'm reading, like that is me. That is me like on a page. That is me in a movie. That is me just like in front of me and I'm seeing this and, and I realize that another person has felt what I'm feeling and another person has encapsulated my mm-hmm. experience. And that's just such a wonderful, beautiful experience. And kind of to touch on something that Abby also spoke about earlier, that sometimes we feel represented by things that might not necessarily be made for us. And sometimes we don't feel represented by mm-hmm. things that are supposed to be catered to us. And that kind of like really resonates with me because I think the time that I felt most represented was when I read this book called No No Boy by John Okada in this one class that I took last quarter. It was actually the first Asian American studies class I ever took. And I was, <laughs> I was so excited for it because, I mean, like it was my New Year's resolution in like my second year of college to take an Asian American studies class just because I've heard so much about these classes, so much from people who like have this major. And I just really wanted to incorporate it into my curriculum. So I took this class and one of the books we read was Nono Boy, which is essentially a novel about the experience of this Japanese American man who answered no and no to these two questions that they asked all these Japanese American men during World War II or the months leading up to World War II, where it was essentially like, do you like pledge allegiance to the United States? Do you forsake your loyalty to Japan? And will you fight uh, as part of the U.S. Army? And this main character answered no and no. And it goes into all these complex feelings and why he answered that way, what he was feeling, what he was experiencing. And I just remember like this experience is completely different from my own. I am not a a Japanese American man. I was not alive during the World War II period. And yet, (laughs) no, yeah, crazy guys. I I was not alive during World War II. Um, And yet I saw myself reflected so powerfully and so authentically in this book. Like specifically, there's this one passage kind of, kind of taking a, a note from Eden's point here with reading a passage from the book that like moved me to tears. But there's this one passage where the main character, um, he says, one is not raised in America and taught in America and one does not speak and swear and drink and smoke and play and fight and see and hear in America among Americans in American streets and houses without becoming American and loving it. And what that passage means to me is that you can be raised in a place and you can spend your whole life in a place and yet other people can still tell you that you don't belong there that no matter what you are who you are no matter what your experience is because you don't look a certain way because you don't experience things a certain way because you're not a certain type of person that you just don't belong there and that's that was just something that really spoke to me because like coming from my positionality as an immigrant to the united states um the main character in the book was born in the United States, but I feel like it applies to my experience as well because I wasn't born here, but I did immigrate here at a very young age. So this specific passage about being raised in the United States and just being inundated with American culture and growing up thinking and conceptualizing myself as American first and foremost, but then eventually growing into my identity as an Indian American immigrant person and realizing that I was not what I always thought I was. 
like I always conceptualized myself as American. And then in the future, I was told, no, you're not. You're not an American because you weren't born here. And obviously, that's something that's beyond my circumstance. Like, it's not like I chose where I was born. But then all of a sudden, because of these like legal circumstances, I just wasn't what I thought I was. And then there was this whole, I'm not going to go into it now, but there was this whole period of adjustment where I just had to like process what that meant for me, process what that meant for my family, and just come to a lot of realizations about my own identity. And to make a long story short, essentially what happened is that this book was almost like a spiritual experience for me because I'm like, this man who wrote this book wrote it like decades before I was born. He is a completely different ethnicity. He has a completely different experience. And yet across time and space, I felt like he touched my soul. And I just feel like that is what real representation is. It doesn't have to necessarily be for you, but it just makes you feel like there is someone out there at some point in history that has felt the way you feel and that they existed. And that means that you are also okay to exist in the same space. So that's just, that's just how, how I feel about it. And I just wanted to share that after hearing that amazing, beautiful experience that you had, Eden. Like, uh, you got me crying on the pod. What the heck? Aww. No, because, I mean, here's the thing, though. Um, that's why we, like, as a podcast, are so importantly trying to focus on the Pan-Asian, uh, like, on the Pan-Asian experience. Because we are understanding that, like, even though there are differences between the identity of who falls under the umbrella of Asian, um, there are overlaps. And there's a reason like why we're even called like dear Asian girl um name change pending. Because, you know, we like there is clearly something to be said about these similarities of experiences there. And it makes me just it you talking right now, I'm like, my heart is warmed, my eyes are watering. Like that's so magna i'm like giving you a little kiss on the forehead right now like oh wait stop this is like i just feel so wholesome right now abby that was i love you i'm not just a hater i'm a lover too (laughs) (laughs) um i wanted to add really quickly to what you were saying eden and also in a way magna like i'm currently reading this book can't speak for how effective it's been so far um it's by Grace Cho. It's called Haunting the Korean Diaspora, uh, Shame, Secrecy, and the Forgotten War. And it's kind of talking about the uh, Korean War and its impact on the future generations. And I think that there is, if we are finding ever difficulty in representation that we are getting now, there's always something to be said about looking to the past. Uh, not necessarily media that was made in the past, but media which focuses on our histories or um, literally things that happened. Magna, you said like this book was written way before like your time. Um, and Eden, you're talking about how like Untitled <laughs> Untitled Fuck Miss Saigon like talks about the legacy and history and generations, like generations of trauma. And I think that when we are able to look into our histories beyond from what we are experiencing now, that we can get representation that is sometimes much deeper and has more weight than what I feel like I want necessarily right now. Like, yes, uh, cutting fruit 
instead of an apology, I'm kind of tired of it. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. I need people to up their metaphors, to up their, like, um, diaspora poems, like, twofold. Like, you can't be like, I'm, I'm not American enough for the Americans, but I'm not Asian enough for the Asians. Like, you can feel that way, but I'm a real with you. Um, I'm not going to give you an award because I feel like as our current generation of Asians who are in the diaspora, like, we are slowly becoming more and more beyond that conversation. We already had that conversation about bringing your lunch into school and people going, you stinky, like, real, like, those things happen. I think we should give them credit. And I can't pretend I would not get a little emotional depending on, like, the medium in which it's shown. And I want to, like, give value to everyone's experiences. But at the same time, if we are able to engage critically and with our history, we can, I think, realize that our experiences are not just in the modern and that we... I sound like Kamala Harris. Have you been seeing the thing where it's like... <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. You just fall from a coconut... Well, we didn't just fall from a coconut tree. <laughs> mm. I think we can get far more satisfying representation when we are looking at it with a little bit more weight. Not just things that are mm. um, like easy cut and paste things to say people are like, oh yeah, Asian, you know? Yeah, I feel like Western society has a tendency to be like that, as in yes. a tendency to really live in the now and forget that there was a past and that there mm. will be a future and that we need to like preserve the earth, we need to look back at how the earth looked before, we need to like look back to our ancestors. And so like, I feel like for me, a lot of connecting with my heritage has been about, I mean, intrinsically it's about reconnecting with like your history and your ancestors and the people before you uh, but yeah I feel like history is such a key aspect to this like representation conversation I just wanted to go back to I guess geography then about what Megna you were bringing up about how you can have grown up in a society and, and a country your entire life and people will still tell you you don't belong um, I really feel that and I feel like in a UK context a big part of how people are excluded under the while under the guise of being included is through the distinction between what is considered English and what is considered British. So I, w I do not really associate with the label of English. I don't feel very English. And I found that the people who do identify with Englishness tend to be the raging nationalists. And like patriotism is such an interesting thing in a UK context. We can dive into that in a whole nother episode, honestly. Um, and how like football ties into all of that because oh my god I wrote an essay on Bend It Like Beckham and football is such a huge part of this conversation anyway that's a that's another topic for another day but there's a tendency for I guess neoliberal white westerners to maybe accept that um immigrant ethnic people are British but they won't ever call us English and I won't even self-identify with English because it feels kind of icky but Britishness has always existed, like since the time of like the empire, I suppose, like the British Empire, as a way to like catch all of those people that they didn't consider English, um, which came with its own connotations of like class and like wealth and the color of your skin and how pale you were, um, and how you dressed and everything and how you spoke. But 
yeah, Britishness existed as a way to include all those people that they, yeah, that fed outside of like a particular geographic location. And so it's always felt very interesting. Yeah, this distinction between Englishness and Britishness and who is allowed to identify as what and who is seen as what. Because my sister did, this is kind of a tangent, but my sister did a study abroad for a year in the US. Um, and she found it interesting how coming from the UK, she found that people in the US were less likely to assume that she wasn't American. Wait, so as in, in the UK, if a white Westerner saw you, they would, they might automatically assume that you were not British or English or however you want to say it. But in the US, she found people would just assume that she was American or assume that she was Western and they wouldn't as much like, go into thinking, oh, she's somewhere from Asia, like she can't be from here. Um, so that was very interesting. I don't know. I guess like the UK versus US perception of who is and isn't included in terms like British or English or like American is also a really important conversation, a really interesting one. But yeah, I just, I really appreciate how we're bringing geography into this and, and belonging, I guess, is what we're always coming back to. No, I just want to kind of build off of that because it's, that's so fascinating the way you, you draw that distinction between what people consider English and British, because like from a U.S. context, what I've noticed is that there's always qualifiers for people who don't look like white Western-ish because like it's always your Indian American or your Chinese American or your Jamaican American or your African American. There's always that qualifier for people who aren't white or white presenting or whatever, right? Like no one says you're German American unless you're like literally an immigrant from Germany who just landed on the shores of the United States. You know what I mean? Because like you can you can live here for like generations and still be known as Japanese American. But then a white person can immigrate from like, I don't know, France and then just be American. You know what I mean? Like white so man did it in two days. Sorry. Like that meme, the white man did it in two days. Literally, literally. So like, I mean, in, in one context, I like that there's a qualifier because it acknowledges and embraces the fact that we are multinational, that we come from many different places and that heritage and that culture will always be a part of our families. But then also it's like, it's just interesting to me that I'll, I'll never be known as American. It'll always be Indian American or whatever American you are. You know what I mean? Yeah. But you know, who needs, who needs that? Who, who needs America? Yeah. <laughs> Also, so I'm really curious, maybe we can go around, and I know we kind of talked about one piece of media we really love. Let's go around. Can we, like, say our, maybe a, do we have favorite representation in categories? And we can go around and say one each, just, like, really quickly round off, or, like, maybe just give a list of our top three representation moments. <laughs> like, it's, mo like, wow. a Watch Mojo video. <laughs> watch Mojo. Okay. Not including the I'm going to say two. Okay, cool. Go off. <laughs> I'm going to ruin the game. I'm going to say two. Um, so I saw Elemental recently. I don't... Is it Disney or Pixar? I, I recently saw the film Elemental. And nobody warned me that this was going to be a film about immigration and interracial relationships and intergenerational trauma. So I just entered this thinking, oh my God, what a fun little movie about elements everyone looks so cute the art's adorable and then immediately the first scene it's like them it's the parents immigrating to the this new place i can't remember what it's called um and then like the fire element and like here's like where there's more like water and 
I don't know, other people. And I was just like, oh my God, wait, this is about immigration. And like they get to the desk and it's like, they do the whole like stamp thing and they say what their names are in their like um, home language. And the officer there doesn't know what they're saying. So he just gives them like, I was going to say white names, not water names. I don't know. They just like, um, yeah, westernizes their, their um, names. And from then on, I knew I was probably going to cry in the film. And I did at least twice. Um, but yeah, that just really hit me, Elemental. It's so Asian coded as well. Like it seems specifically about Asian um, or like East and Southeast Asian specifically immigration just because of the, the sounds, like the accents of the characters. Anyway, so Elemental was a huge one for me. Um, and I also just have to drop this in because I'm seeing Leve tomorrow in London <laughs> in the Earth Theatre in Hackney. I'm so excited. Um, but yeah, Leve's song, Letter to My 13-Year-Old Self, it may as well have been a letter to my 13-year-old self for me because it just hit, like, it just hit perfectly. And God, if she performs it live tomorrow, I'm probably going to, like, dissolve. So I'll check in and let you guys know in the next episode if I did dissolve. She's well, I mean, I won't be here, so. <laughs> She's the real Asian Icelandic queen. Like, I yes. thought this was my time. Like, I've been growing, I, I talked about this in our group chat. I fully grew up thinking Bjork was Asian, but it's like, no, 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 she's not. She just looks like that. So, yes. How do you say her name again? Leve. Leve. Cool. In my brain, I'd be saying Lof. I'm like Lofi. So, but. Um... So I used to say Love. And then I had. So she. In Icelandic, you say it Leve. I'm probably not really saying that right. So the English version is Leve. And my favorite thing is that all of her fans will just give her like awful names. Like it's other Asian people. So I guess it's like semi okay she's fine with it but i've had laundry i've had luffy i've had loofah well, luffy like one piece God. luffy what? <laughs> the one piece yes. the one piece um but maybe <laughs> she is true asian icelandic that's all i have to say Megna, what's your list <laughs> um i think i'll i'll go with with eden's strategy and name two too um okay i think the first one that comes to mind is something that I watched recently. It's It was a, a horror movie called It Lives Inside. And it is the first, like, uniquely Indian-American horror movie that I've ever seen. Like, obviously, there are Indian horror movies like, that have been created by the Indian film industry. But this was, like, specifically an Indian-American horror movie. And I don't know, there, there was just something so, like, special about seeing myself and someone who represents me in this genre. Because, like... I have never seen like an Indian American person in a horror movie before. I feel like sometimes like Asian people are kind of, I don't know if the right word to use is like segregated, but like sometimes we're just like kind of boxed into a certain like genre. Like it's always the YA coming of age dramas that have like Asian representation or you have like an Asian side character, an Asian best friend or whatever, or Asian comedic relief. But like we, like, we can exist in multiple genres, if you know what I mean, right? Like, we can be in, like, different types of media. And, like, I have never seen a horror movie, like, built around, like, Indian mythology, like, like, and having it be experienced by an Indian-American person who's, like, coming to terms with her identity and stuff. So, like, I just thought that was so cool to see that. And it was actually a genuinely, like, good movie. Like, I thought it was good. Like, and I mean, obviously there was some kind of, there were some reused tropes, like, of the whitewashed Asian girl trying to escape her, 
escape her identity. Like that was there, which I guess is its own thing. But like, I just, I just really appreciated the fact that like I could, I could see myself in multiple different like genres. Like I just thought that was really cool. And then my second one I wanted to name is the first Indian American novel I ever read, which is called The Namesake. I read it in my senior year of high school. Uh, it was part of like a an ethnic, it was part of like a DEI initiative at my school to include more like ethnically diverse literature in our English classes. So like one of the, no, yeah, that was, that was directly out of like the whole like nationwide movement to diversify our curriculum. So I thought that was really cool, but it was essentially like, a project where we could choose any novel that we wanted that was by a non-white, non-cishat person. And I chose this novel just because, like, I have never read an an Indian-American novel before. And so The Namesake, it wasn't, like, the best novel I ever read, but, like, I just thought it was so important to me to, like, read about my experience. Like, I, I've never done that before. So, like, it was it, maybe it might not have been the best representation, it might not have been the best book I've ever read, but like, it was just really meaningful to me to know that a novel like this did exist and that there are people out there creating this content. And that, again, like just the visibility is so important. I feel like at least as a, as a first level experience or like a first step to being more included in these spaces, just being visible and knowing that the content exists is just really important. Yes. Why did I say yes? But that was great. <laughs> yes. Love your, love your list. Well, you guys both said two, so now I'm going to do two. Otherwise <laughs> Sorry, Abby. No, you can do six. What? Do six, I queen. don't want to do Okay, fine. Okay, so... Girl's about to go first off. On my list, first on my list is Mitski. Um, I'm sure anyone who's listening to this, by the time this comes out, it'll be still relevant, hopefully. Um, unless white Mitski fans uh, fix their behavior, then it won't have to be relevant anymore. But I really love Mitski. And not just flattening her as purely an Asian artist, but acknowledging that her experiences and her identity affect her art in a way in which it's like, and also the way in which we should be interacting with her as an artist. Like, I was talking to my uh, Asian friend uh, last night about this, and we were like saying how, yeah, of course, maybe a white artist would be okay with you being like, you're so sexy, you're so hot, mother. But, like, when you're an Asian person in these fields struggling to gain recognition, um, I would say maybe East Asian moment, but, like, when you're an East Asian person in these fields trying to gain recognition beyond, like, a shallow idea of you being something to be consumed, like, all artists are asking to be consumed, but the ways in which an East Asian uh, and Asian people are consumed on a daily like basis in just living. Yeah, I would understand why it's like sit your white ass down and stop saying mother is mothering in the middle of the TV shows. Like, there's different etiquettes for different kinds of concerts. Um, just like I don't know, be mindful of that. Also, whenever a white person's like, um, your best American, my your best American, American girl's my favorite song. From Mitski, I'm like, <laughs> it's good. I just, why that one? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, next, uh, another artist who I really love is Ju Young Choi. Um, I discovered her back in my in high school, and she is a textile artist, a painter, uh, installation artist, and I 
love her work. Um, and it had this kind of eccentric style focusing uh, on her experience as a adoptee. But in general, like, I just loved it because I was like, wow, visually entranced. And the words that she chose for one of her installations stuck with me and pretty much became the guidance for my 3D art project for AP, AP 3D art, which, by the way, fun fact, I got a one in, but I don't, my, my teacher said I shouldn't have gotten that score. Um, okay, people are like, just blind. Like, people are just, just yes. not. No, no, no. Yeah, they were like, my professor was like, our teacher was like, you should have gotten like a three, like, but not a one. You should have gotten like, a five, Abby. You should have gotten a five. No, no, I shouldn't have gotten a five. Um, but anyways, it's called, so the installation piece was called Have Faith for You Have Always Been Loved. And oh my God, I'm bawling. Stop, that name is so wholesome. I know, right? Also, like, I highly recommend looking into the stuff she does. She does some video art too, and it's so good. I like puppetry. Oh, mwah, 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 mwah. Uh, Weird aliens uh, of the world unite. Uh, next, Ruthie Cookley is a comic artist, Marie Naomi, um, queer comic artist. I love comics. I'm a huge graphic novels person. I love making comics. Uh, and so to see a queer Asian really making that space for other queer Asians into that field. Um, kisses, 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 kisses. Uh, and then lastly, a one more book recommendation I have um, for all the people who are out there who maybe could say that you're like to all my people like to all my asian asian girlies out there who read sylvia plath in middle school and that permanently changed their brain chemistry um go read oriental girls desire romance by katherine Liu. if you are a Asian middle school, Asian girl who in middle school was reading Sylvia Plath and is now seeking a career in academia, go read Oriental Girls Desire Romance. And I'm going to leave it at that. That's my representation. I think we're, 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 we're coming this episode out. Let's, uh, let's, let's get it to the, no, no, yes, let's do that. Stuff about cars. Let's pull the lever in the car that would suggest that we are changing our direction to go to the end of the episode. Stop. What's everyone's main takeaways? <laughs> Let's pull the lever. So Brilliant transition, guys. Um, <laughs> British people, lever. <laughs> Sorry. Takeaways. Representation is complicated. And I there's just so much to go into with representation. We've like scratched the surface. Also, there are so many other things that make us all feel represented that we haven't been able to touch on. Um, and this is a conversation that could go on for an entire season in itself. So yeah, we just kind of hit the surface. But I've really enjoyed having this little chat. I feel like to wrap up, maybe we can talk about our hopes for the future of representation, mm -hmm. where we think it might be going, where we hope it's going, um, and what we, yeah, what we wish for, I suppose. Megna, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, sure. Like you said, there's probably a million different things I could say for my hopes for the future of representation. I'm just going to touch on like a couple of them. I think first and foremost, um, it's my biggest hope that in the future, every person subscribing to every identity finds a piece of media, a movie, a book, a TV show, a song that they can just fundamentally relate to and find a feeling of belonging from 
that's just my hope because like obviously there's are there are probably billions of combinations of intersectional identities out there but i just hope that someday everyone who subscribes to every identity finds a place for themselves and i also want to say that this is just a this is a random kind of point that i'm making all of a sudden but do you guys know how like cishet actors are sometimes hired to play queer characters because like for some reason that doesn't really make sense to me because like queer actors exist so why don't people just go find them you know what i mean are you dunking on our Asian king darren chris <laughs> um sorry darren <laughs> chris but essentially what i'm trying to say here is that, is that <laughs> there are all these compilations online of like actors who refuse to play gay characters and i know that's like like that's its that's its own complex issue and weird but like what i mean is that like if you're trying to create a story of let's say like a trans female indonesian immigrant to a western country like you don't need to go find like a like some random actress or actor to, to play that role like you can go find someone who's a trans female indonesian immigrant like i i bet you that that person exists out there and it's just like you're not looking hard enough to find them you know what i mean I feel like if you want to authentically yeah. represent a story, you need to go find someone who encapsulates that experience. And if you feel like, oh, that person just doesn't exist, you're just not looking hard enough and you're not looking in the right places and you're not conducting outreach effectively. So I think my hopes for the future, I hope everyone finds something that they feel like they belong. And I hope that we find, we like look for people who actually represent the stories that we want to tell and that we promote them, uplift them, and empower them by giving them the opportunities to represent their identities and their experiences in media. Yes, and Magna, I just want to add on to that. First of all, everyone in 2018, Darren Chris said he would stop playing gay people as much. Uh, so, but more than that, ignoring that, that was just a funny little statement about Darren Chris. He's been in my mind recently. <laughs> I mean, his glee, his glee cover of Teenage Dream, how could it not be? Um, Wait, stop. Stop. For some reason, I could not connect the name Darren Chris to an actor. I was just like nodding my head. But now I know exactly who you're talking about. Stop. Um, Blaine from Glee, Waysian King. People don't know he's Waysian, but they do know he is. And also, they don't know he's straight sometimes because he loves playing gay people, but he is fully straight. Um, yeah, Wait, that is so exactly who I was talking about. Stop. I, I was talking exactly <laughs> about this man, even though I had no idea what his name was. And perfect. It just shows that, like, even as Asians, there's room for us to make sure we are not being, <laughs> we are keeping ourselves in check with our intersectional identities. Um, but I wanted to say, like, beyond to, like, getting that representation, what I want is for us to not only get representation, but I want us to be able to have our own institutions, um, like, to have our own places, too, like, to not necessarily just be creating our own, like, having to force ourselves to be like we're in your world now like for mainstream media but also just to continue like continue bolstering up the spaces that we have that are dedicated to us that are made to uplift yeah. us and you hear this with companies who are like we're trying to be more diverse in our hiring but then they don't have a their way that their business is run the way that their whole like institution is set up does not say for anything about longevity for the people who are in there and so if we want representation, uh, I also want that at the thing of some, not only uh, some slay moments of like arts and media, but also tangible impacts onto our communities, onto our people. And also 
Um, more silly, more silly, fun, funny representation too. That's a little side thing too. Yes, I, I love a little oh my silly God. guy, like who can do what as a as a silly goofy guy who's also Asian. Like, I want more silly goofy guys who are doing Asian things, but also mm. not like, but not the jokes not being Asian, but you just know how to do it. Like, you know, yeah, but like they're the butt of the joke. Just in a oh, this is a silly fun guy who's just silly and fun, like in a good way, not yeah. in a weird sidekick way. Yes, not in a weird side character kind of way. I want, yeah, you're I like want, speaking my language. I want Asian loser characters. I want more Asian. Oh, loser Asian loser characters. Like bottoms, like with bottoms. Should like, that be the title? <laughs> Asian losers Asian for life. Loser <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, I really feel this. I'm a really big believer in. The fact that we just need safe spaces. And I know that a lot of people, the issue they have with the concept of safe spaces is that, oh, why do you need safe spaces? Let's just build a world that is a safe space. Girl, I don't know when you think that's going to happen, but I don't see it happening anytime soon. And like, in the meantime, of course we need safe spaces. And of course we should nurture and establish these safe spaces because I don't know how far this like future is in the horizon, but I can't see her. And it would be great if we can just do multiple things at once. Yes. Um, like have safe spaces while also attempting to make the entire world one big safe space for everyone. Yeah. And also, side note, going back to what you were saying, Meghna, about how, you know, like um, cishet people playing queer roles. It's reminding me of, well, as you might guess, I read my dissertation on Miss Saigon, like many Asian students. Um, and a big thing for Miss Saigon was, the fact that so I looked at the entire casting history and every single okay I'm gonna say almost every single actress who played Kim was Filipino and Kim is Vietnamese and I think there's like one Japanese actress thrown in there so there's like this can I think this is like seen across the board as well with like a lot of Asian female characters is that they are often played by Filipino um actresses and that's for good reason in terms of like oh my god filipino like musical theater training had like its whole thing and filipino singers oh my god they they have my heart i love filipino singers and like musicians and they're so talented and hardworking, and they deserve these positions but there's so much to say about i think it's, it's the whole thing of not allowing all asian people to become a monolith it's like Instead of just having an Asian actress play an Asian role, how about you have the specific kind of Asian ethnicity play that specific kind of Asian ethnicity's role? Like it just makes sense. Yeah, like we're not nuanced, we're not, ladies. Okay. Nuanced. We're not interchangeable. Like you can't just like switch yeah, us around no. and be like, oh, this person okay. can just fit in this role because she looks Asian. Question can I mark? say a great example? Can I say a great example of this then is Joyride? Yeah. Because Joyride <gasps> initially has a character, spoilers for Joyride who is uh, presumably to be Chinese. Uh, but then everyone's like, okay, but this is casted. Ashley Park is Korean. Uh, spoilers. Then they find out she's adopted from Korea. Like she's from, like she was, her parents are from Korea. And that's like a really interesting way you can kind of work with almost the meta of how casting works on the outside external thing. Also, Ashley Park is like so gorge. Hmm. Oh so true yeah but you guys this really rocked 
uh, you're all so brilliant. I love having our chatty episodes, and I hope all of our listeners out there really enjoyed it too. Please, like on Instagram, on wherever you can kind of reach us and contact us, we would love to hear the words that you have to say about representation and how art has impacted you. Um, also, just how you've been feeling about the season. This is also the second last episode of the season. So we all just want to say thank you. Uh, everyone, let's say thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. We love you. Yeah. And what was, maybe just before we end it, like, because I'm super excited for that last episode, but what has been your favorite part about this? What has been your favorite part of this season, everyone? I think one of my favorite parts about the season has just been, like, the different ranges of interviews we've gotten. Um, look, I can't help it. I'm Gen Z. I love consuming media and so much of art includes media. And so this has been a great time uh, for me specifically. I've loved that I've been able to interact with local Asian places in my region of where I am in Seattle. Um, shout out Wing Luke Museum again. I love doing that. Episode. Yes. Amazing episode. I think for me, it's been able to kind of nerd out and introduce a lot of things that I um, studied or, or read because at heart I am a nerd and I am proud of that and it's really fun to be able to talk about these things now that I've graduated and I no longer feel intellectually stimulated all of the time unless I'm going out of my way to make sure I'm like reading challenging texts and things so it's really nice I'm able to do it here and I hope we'll find that interesting. I would say my favorite part of this season has just been like being able to to critically analyze and dissect something that a lot of people take for granted, I think, or think is a very simple thing to do. But no, like representation is very complex. It's very nuanced. People do it really badly and people do it really well. And sometimes it's just like a hit or miss kind of thing. So I just really like that this entire season, we've been able to consider all these different forms of art and just really reflect and think about how we're being represented in these art forms like what is working well, what is not working well. And just like, and even at the end of this episode, like what we hope will improve in the future. Like I really genuinely do hope that diversity and representation just becomes normal in, in media. I really do hope that Asian characters are included, not just for their Asianness, but just because they're special and like they're, they're important and they exist in these spaces. And I just really hope that one day diversity and like, a range of experiences just becomes the norm. Like no one questions it. I really do hope that we just get to a place where no one questions that there's just all these different types of people who exist in this world. So I just, I just really like that we've been able to talk about all of this and just really reflect on our own experiences and, and reflect on the things that we've seen in the world. So, yeah. I think that's a perfect way to round it out. Like, uh, thank you guys all for listening. Like I said earlier, please, you know, We'd love to hear from you guys, all of our listeners. But most of all, thanks for listening. Have a good rest of your day. Bye. Bye, everybody. Bye. 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 As this episode comes to a close, we'd like to shout out the rest of our team who you don't hear from as often as as co-hosts. Their contributions are integral to the smooth running of Dear Asian Girl, and we would hate to take all the credit for what is truly a huge team effort. Annika, May, Pavani, Yelda, Anya, and Michaela are our researchers, and Sonia is our audio engineer. Emma, Prisha, and Claire are our social media writers. 
Chloe, Kaylee, and Nicole are our social media illustrators. Alex is our social media manager, and Annette is our podcast manager. And finally, Ellie is our podcast director. Thanks, team. We couldn't do it without you.